Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome back to Professor Christopher Chappell's lectures about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Let's continue with the next lecture. From letting go of the cause of bondage and from the perception of another manifestation, the mind can enter into another body. From mastery of the upbreath, there is non-attachment and arising above water, mud, thorns, etc. From a mastery of the breath in the middle region, there is radiance. From samyama on the connection between the ear and space, there arises the divine ear. From samyama on the connection between the body and space, and from unity with the lightness of cotton, there is movement through space. Bandhakarana shaitilya prachara samvedanacha chitasya para sharira aveshaha. Bandha karana shaitilya prachara samvedana cha chitasya parashirira aveshaha. Bandha karana shaitilya prachara samvedana cha chitasya parashirira aveshaha. Udana Jayaj Jalapanka Kantaka Adishvau Asanga Udkrantischa Udana Jayaj Jalapanka Kantaka Adishu Asanga Udkrantischa Udana Jayaj Jalapanka Kantaka Adishu Asanga Udkrantischa Samana Jayaj Dvalanam, Samana Jayaj Dvalanam, Samana Jayaj Dvalanam, Shotra Akashayoha, Sambanda, Samyamad, Divyam, Shrotram, Shrotra Akashayoha, Sambanda, Samyamad, Divyam Shrotaram Shrotra Akashayaha Sambandha Samyamad Divyam Shrotram Kaya Akashayaha Sambandha Samyamal Lagu Tula Samapet Samapetascha Aka Shagamanam Kaya Akashayoha Sambanda Samyamal Laghu Tula Samapitesh Cha Akasha Gamanam Kaya Ako Akashayoha Sambanda Samyamal Laghu Tula Samapitesh Cha Akasha Gamanam. This cluster of powers, 
following the reminder that the true purpose of doing yoga is to rise to this place of, of clear, pure witness consciousness. This particular cluster provides some rather remarkable powers or accomplishments that we can unpack and we can acknowledge some of the lore that comes from India about their just absolutely fantastic, almost science fiction quality. And at the same time, we can also examine them phenomenologically in a way that can make sense for our everyday experience. So in narratives, both that I've heard, as well as read and accounts of the accomplishments of, of yogis who have gained great power, great vibhuti. There's this notion that a yogi who can suspend sense of self and open through closely observing the experience of another person can actually enter into the bodily experience of that other person. I'd mentioned in an earlier instance about feeling someone else's toothache. That might be one small example. A Swami Asadhu told me directly of witnessing Asadhu at a cremation ground, looking very carefully and intently upon a corpse, and then actually entering the body of that corpse, animating that corpse. From philosophical narrative, we know that Shankara who had remained a sadhu, had remained celibate through his life, had been challenged, had been confronted by someone who said, how can you possibly talk about all aspects of experience when you have never operated on the carnal level? And Shankara himself is said to have gone into a meditative state, entered the body of a married man and experienced what it feels like to make love with one's wife. So a little bit on the fantastic side, but there's also another way that we can view this particular power, and that's perhaps the power of falling in love. And when we fall in love, we can take on a little bit of the feeling of that other person. And it can almost be said that once a couple has been married for a very, very long time, the rhythm of their relationship can sometimes make it very difficult to tell who is who from outsiders and also from people, for people within that relationship. Another thing that I have witnessed is 
sort of the infectious quality whereby a charismatic person can, through lecture, through even a yoga class, invite people into his or her own bhav, his or her own feeling state. And that shared feeling state sort of decenters that personality that clings as separate. And we get a sense almost of a universal mind filling and occupying space. Lots of ways to deal and sort of play with this invitation to enter the bodies of others. Now the next one we find also echoed in the Garanda Samhita and the Dharana on water. And it's suggested here, and this is almost like swimming lessons, that by finding the buoyancy of the up-breath, a person can float in water. A person can manage to get quickly through a thicket of thorns. A person can not literally get stuck in the mud. And this recalls to mind for me those instances of childhood where we would just be out as kids, wandering the fields and forests, crossing streams, working on not getting what we would call a hot foot, not getting our sneakers filled with water. And that we sort of developed these skills of being fleet-footed. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it did not. But undoubtedly, in that childhood, experiment. There was sort of a lifting up of the breath as you're trying to leap to the other side of that stream. And that, again, uh, could be taken on a quite remarkable level of sort of floating yogis, but it also can be seen in the practicality of, with that in-breath, moving forward and not getting stuck. Now the middle breath. The sideward breath could be the side here, could be side to side here, with alternate nostril breathing. There's a, a little bit of ambiguity, an opportunity to bring various interpretations to this sutra. However, we know that through sustained breathing, tapas within the body arises. And with this tapas comes a warmth felt quite often within the cheeks. And as the cheeks register that calm, that centering, that heat that gets stirred up in the body through practice, there can and there will be a radiance, a little bit of a glow. Now, the ear. Think virtually everybody, every human, has within her or his programming an attraction to music, an attraction to sound. 
in yoga practice. We have kirtan. We have bhajan. We have mantra. And music provides an opportunity to transform mood. And music and mantra have the capacity to transport an individual to a place, literally, of bliss. And this entry through playing with that relationship between sound and ear delivers one to a divine place, the place of the divine ear. And we know that music provides a gateway to the sublime. And likewise, our body. Our body occupies space. To be oriented within space remains from the Upanishads, from the sutras of the Buddha, from the sutras of Jainism. To be oriented in space signals the beginning of spiritual awareness. To know and to honor the direction of the rising sun. To know and honor the direction and the space of the fullness of the risen sun, always, when you're in the northern hemisphere, to the south. To know and anticipate the completion of the day in the western region, the western space. And to know and appreciate the deep darkness, the cover of night. For those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, the Northern orientation, the orientation toward calm. All of that gives a sense of emplacement. And then the imaginative configuring. The awareness that, oh, I hear something off to that direction. And also those people, including my own father and many different people that I've met over the years, who've had an experience, a near-death experience, where their awareness rises up and looks down as if from above, that signaling of a movement through space, okay, all of these experiences well-documented, and in the instance of a yogi, putting oneself into this imaginative space of flight, of transporting oneself upward, of being able to move to experience, Okay, all of those things call us to recognize that our body, which includes the subtle body, has a capacity to move. So as a yoga teacher, how can one make sense 
of these seemingly supernormal, paranormal, supernatural experiences. And with CGI, with video games, with the special effects that we now find in movies, with going back to the era of the comic book and going back into early even science fiction, if we trace that relationship, we see that there is actually connection all the way back to some of these amazing stories told in the Sanskrit Puranas of flight, of an ability to move about, of an ability to shape-shift, of an ability to move into the bodies of others. And again, this is an opportunity for play, an opportunity perhaps to you to, for you to share as a yoga teacher, yeah, a little bit of, yeah, I had this dream, or, you know, I had this meditation and I, I was just in a different place. I'm here now, don't worry. But it was fun going to that other place. All of these flights of fancy, if you will, allow us to loosen our attachment to a defined, a fixed materiality and invite us to give some space to this notion of where music can bring us, to give a little bit of headspace that values that meditative, fanciful, imaginative journey or pilgrimage that again serves the purpose of reminding us that sometimes the better world is a world that we create, is a world that we experience when we go to the theater, is the world when we find ourselves completely absorbed in a motion picture, is a world, a world of magical realism is offered by the great Latin American writers, is a world that reminds us that we are part of a flow of history that has never been fixed, that is constantly changing. And through this, we ourselves can become physically fleet-footed, using our up-breath, and metaphorically fleet-footed in terms of not taking our narrative too seriously. We can learn through stories like this that we can have moments whereby imagination provides a gateway. Imagination provides a gateway to the sense of what is possible. And as Patanjali reminds us again and again, these imaginative engagements must not reinforce ego, but these imaginative, imaginative engagements have 
the true potential to allow us to elevate, to allow us to move closer, more intimately with that sense of swa-atma, our better, our higher, our inner self, and our sense of swarupa, an engagement of the realm of form in a way that always keeps in mind that place of yoga quiet, that abode, that safe space, that peaceful place of the yogi, of the witness, of the seer who merely looks on. In outer, genuine fluctuation results in freedom from the body. Hence, the covering of light is destroyed. From Samyama on the significance and connection between the subtle, the own form, and the gross, there is mastery over the elements. Hence, the appearance of minuteness and so forth, perfection of the body, and unassailability of its dharma arise. Perfection of the body is beauty of form, strength, and diamond-like stability. From Samyama on the significance and connection of grasping own form and ego, there is mastery over the sense organs. Hence, there is swiftness of the mind, a state of being beyond the senses, and mastery over the original source of the manifest. Bahir akalpita ritir mahavideha tataha prakasha avarana kashayaha Bahir akalpita vrittir maha videha tattaha prakasha avarana kashayaha Bahir akalpita vrittir maha videha tattaha prakasha avarana kashayaha Stula Svarupa, Sukshma, Anvaya, Artavatva, Samyamad, Bhuta, Jayaha. Stula, Svarupa, Sukshma, Anvaya, Atarvatva, Samyamad, Bhuta, Jayaha. Stula, Svarupa, Sukshma, Anvaya, Artavatva Samyamad Bhuta Jayaha Tato Animahadi Pradur Bhavaha Kaya Sampat Tad Dharma Anabhigatascha Tato Animahadi Pradur Bhavaha 
kaya, sampat, tad, dharma, anabhigatascha, tato, anima, adi, pradur bhavaha, kaya, sampat, tad, dharma, anabhigatascha, rupa, lavanya, balavajra, samhananatvani, kaya, Sampat Rupa Lavana Bala Vajra Samhanana Tvani Kaya Sampat Rupa Lavanya Bala Vajra Samhanana Tvani Kaya Sampat Grahana Svarupa Asmita Anvaya Arta Vatva samyamad indriya jayaha grahana svarupa asmita anvaya arta vatva samyamad indriya jayaha grahana svarupa asmita anvaya arta vatva samyamad indriya jayaha Tato mano javitvam vikarna bhavaha pradana jayascha. Tato mano javitvam vikarna bhavaha pradana jayascha. Tato mano javitvam vikarna bhavaha pradana jayascha. Oh, what a magnificent cascade playing with the manifest, with the gross, playing with the sensory process, with the subtle, playing with the capacity of the human mind through its focus to ascend toward states of perfection. One of my favorite, almost seemingly inscrutable sutras, opens this section, and it suggests an outer genuine fluctuation results in freedom from the body. When I think of this, it calls to mind states of being whelmed in nature. To have an experience of the external, the Bahir, that is immediate and direct, allows us to forget about ourselves. And yet, remember that in those states, we've had an experience of that inner light simply becoming revealed. And I'm remembering walking through an apple orchard when I was about eight or nine years old. And as I was walking through a stand of Gravensteins, the first apples of fall to ripen, this goldfinch came and circled my head with its remarkable lilting flight and then just disappeared. 
And this memory brings bliss. And this memory brings to mind the bliss that I experienced as a child, where in this moment of abiding peace, that instant of the encounter with the goldfinch, all of the glory of creation was revealed, and I was placed in an unforgettable moment of timelessness. So that actually makes a a nice segue, transition into the next sutra. And as we're able to reflect upon this delicate relationship between the subtle and the relationship between the subtle and the swarupa, and if it's untrammeled by karmic burden, it's pure and beautiful mastery within the realm of the stula, within the realm of the gross, then we have a mastery of understanding the functionality of the elements. So that that realm of earth, the orchard, water, the rain that nurtures those trees, fire, the sunlight that allows the trees to bloom and the fruit to ripen, air, that beautiful exchange between what we know now, carbon dioxide and oxygen, the breath of the human body, and that space, that space of memory, that space of the orchard, that space of the flying goldfinch. Okay, all of those allow for us to understand and literally master the realm of the elements. And out of that, we understand the significance of paying attention to the minute, to the small, to the small experience the small immediacy, receiving birdsong through our ears. And when we know that relationship, there's a perfection. We understand the gift of the human body. And we understand that whatever appears within that realm of the sensorium It arises when karmas have been purified. It arises from a dharma, a dharma inseparable from a state of purity, inseparable from sattva, inseparable from that light that stands in intimate relationship with each small experience. And this, what a gift. And when this happens, we feel, regardless of our shape or outward appearance, 
we feel this beauty of form. We feel a strength encompassing but beyond physical strength. And we feel that like a diamond, we are reflecting the universe and the universe is reflected in us. That perfected gem, that perfected state of mind pointed to by the metaphor of becoming like a pure jewel, allowing all that is present to present itself in such a way that that covering over the light disappears and that light, that stability, that dime in itself simply gleams. The physical, the physical gives us the raw material, the stuff required in order to ascend to that sense of things, everything being filled with purpose, in every purpose reminding us of that higher self. Now, another, again, echoing Savitarka as we talk about the gross, and now Savichara as we talk about the subtle. If we think about how and why we grasp, if we think about the Swarupa, the true form that is grasped, and the purpose of that narrative being presented, and how all of that narrative ends up with this place of ego, then, having told the narrative, having understood that narrative, then, from that purified understanding of narrative, we're able to send out the senses to places that edify, to places that do not bring us repeatedly to klishta karma, do not bring us from a place and to a place of ignorance, egotism, addiction, repulsion, or even that sense, I gotta keep doing this, okay? That no, we're able through skill in repose, through skill in going to that place of calm, we're able to, through that mastery, engage with a sense of purpose. And with that, our mind becomes fleet, our mind becomes quick. Through our mastery of the senses, we know that what's most important rises above the senses. And with that, with that thorough fluency of narrative, with our comportment, our carriage, our chariot truly under our control, we're able to reorder. We're able to go to that level of those deep samskaras, 
those deep vasanas, those deep impressions that gradually, gradually, gradually have been sort of brought up out of the unconscious into the conscious and we're able to make choices about how to manifest through our ego into the realm of the material, through the senses, engaging with the elements, how to construct a world, how to construct a life that edifies rather than denigrates. A positivity becomes accessible as a person of yoga, unimaginable in our moments of darkness. Now, as a yoga teacher, what you can do in reflecting upon this description by Patanjali about the delicate relationship between the dark and the hidden, and through yoga, our capacity to take off the covers and to allow this radiant, gem-like, diamond-like, reflective energy be revealed. This skill, this gift of yoga to cleanse, to purify, to understand, to accept, to rise above, to gain perspective. This through your own reflection and through your own glimpses into those moments of elation, those are the gifts that you can bring to your students. In the circumstance of a yoga class, you've invited people into safe space. You've invited your students into a space of reflection. And you've invited your students over the course of weeks, of months, even years, to gain an intimacy with the physical, with the realm of the elements, to gain an intimacy with the play and the power of the senses, of smelling, of tasting, of seeing, of touching, of hearing, with the bodily functions of digestion, elimination, the watery parts of our reality, intimacy with the power of the hand, with the power of the feet, with the power of the voice. And by inviting students to improve their narrative by inhabiting places of nonviolence, of authenticity, of not taking from others, of owning a purity of one's sexuality by owning so little that the world becomes unencumbered. All of this creates truly a heroic narrative, a narrative along the yoga path that allows all of those difficult places of karmic history to fall away 
through imaginative engagement to become insightful like the Buddha, to become heroic like the Jenna, to become playfully creative like the goddess, to become an adept meditator like Ramana Maharshi or Mer Baba, to become a person of service like Ramdas or Amici or Mother Teresa, to become a person who inspires others like Martin Luther King Jr. or Nelson Mandela, to become someone dedicated to a life moving ever toward greater authenticity, moving toward freedom of self, moving forward toward being able to create safe, compassionate space for others. This, signaled by Patanjali, is why anyone would ever want to walk into and remain on the blessed path of yoga. Only from the discernment of the difference between sattva and purusha can there be sovereignty over all states of being and knowledge of all. Due to the release, even from this, in the destruction of the seed of this impediment, arises freedom. Attainments should not result in attachment and pride because conditions inevitably change. Sattva Purusha Anyata Kyati Matrasya Sarva Bhavadi Statrtvam Sarvajnya Tertvam Cha Sattvam Purusha Anyata Kyati Matrasya Sarva Bhavadi Statrtvam Sarvajnya Tertvam Cha Sattva Purusha Anyata Kyati Matrasya Sarva Bhava Adista Turtvam Sarvajnya Turtvam Tad Vairagya Dapidosha Bija Kashaye Kaivalyam Tad Vairagya Apidosha Bija Kashaye Kaivalyam Tad Vairagya Apidosha Bija Kashaye Kaivalyam Stani Upani Mantrane Sangha Smaya Akaranam Punaranishta Prasanga Stani Upani Mantrane Sangha Smaya Akaranam Punaranishta Prasanga 
Stani Upani Mantrane Sangasmaya Akaranam Punaranishta Prasangat. In the ability to see that all-important difference between that best self that still has vestiges of ego, that sattva, and purusha, you're able to gain sovereignty. You're able to take charge over all of your states of being and you have knowledge of everything. You have knowledge, thoroughgoing, of how the material constructed realm emerges. And you're able in all moments, through this discernment, to pull back. and also to choose to go forward, to choose, yeah, I'm going to make this work right now. Incredible personal power, enabling majesty over the realms that one chooses to engage. And I remember receiving a blessing from my own teacher a blessing of how to conceptualize and accept the three worlds of my life is a challenge. And she sat with me and I was feeling quite inadequate. I was in my early 20s by this point, feeling utterly not in charge of much of anything. But she gifted. She said, you will carry with you through life the realm of your family, the realm of your work, in my case, academia, my profession, and you will carry always with you the realm of the spirit, your spiritual life. And that makes sense in the context now all of these decades later that, yeah, family, so important. Yes, my life's work as an author, as a teacher. And every day grounded within spiritual practice. And of course, that's not truly the highest of the high, but it's in service of. And when the moment comes, when even that abiding, and yeah, it's really okay, even that must be released because it carries the temptations of ego. Even in that, being quelled in that final moment of the last breath, 
or in that moment in spiritual practice that is truly a moment of silence. In that, we find our freedom. In that, we find our freedom. But Patanjali warns, always those who, and this again is paraphrasing, but I think it's quite clearly implied here, that the higher you fly, the further you fall. And that to develop attachment and pride for success in family, for success in profession, for success in one's spiritual accomplishments, all of those eventually will be dissolved. Now, first, pride in family. I have family, my son, my daughter, my wife, such wonderful, loving experiences. And of course, we get into dispute. Of course, eventually, hopefully, the parents will die first. That's my wife and myself. But perish the thought, the tragedy that would befall if either of our children were to predecease us. So we can celebrate that moment, but remember always that teaching in regard to ignorance of anitya, that it will not be in that perfected state forever, of ashuchi, that there will be moments of conflict, that moments of happiness will transmogrify into moments of a little bit of unhappiness, and that holding to this, like I am this, I am the family man, that that too is an addition to self and not at the ego level and not that place of highest dispassionate self. Second, the realm of accomplishment professionally. One of the, I guess, the oddities of an academic ego is that you have to maintain this thing called a curriculum vitae. And you have to write down, for the purpose of annual review, everything that you do. And you have to list every honor and accolade And in the beginning, the beginning of that piece, professional life, oh, it was so meager. And now as the decades have passed, yeah, lots and lots and lots of accomplishments. But always with a reminder, Durdashana Shakyor Ekatma Tevasmita, that asmita, the ego problem, is thinking that, oh yeah, all that stuff that's on that list is really who I am, when in fact, no. No invitation to pride, 
must be entertained for the true yogi. And then the delicate dance of maintaining spiritual practice, maintaining a spiritual life to the extent of saying, yeah, please, you know, I've tried this. You can try this too. But in instance after instance, so many spiritual teachers have let their ego overshadow that truest unnameable self and have used that aura, have used that status to take advantage of others. And this is not just true of spiritual teachers, it's true of anyone who gains a fair amount of public face, a fair amount of fame, who have unfortunately used that fame to take advantage of others in all manner of corruption. And Patanjali straight on says, you should know from past experience, your own past experience, and from the past experience of so many others, the mighty will fall. And even making it all the way into old age, then all of that accomplishment becomes a memory. Frailty of body, perhaps frailty of mind, ultimately someday will set in. And the job of a steady yogi is to recognize the different stages of life, the different levels of accomplishment. Remember the past to be an acknowledgement of the present and to anticipate that this too will change. This too will change. Now how, as a yoga teacher, might you internalize these sutras? And how, as a yoga teacher, might you invite your students to contemplate their own circumstance and to visualize, perhaps, their own future? Now, admittedly, when we're talking about sattva and purusha, this is a rather rarefied, almost exclusive experience. And yet, as I've suggested again and again, all of these sutras can connect with a person of yoga. So, invite your students and invite yourself to think of those moments where having reached a state of dropping so many fettering karmas that you have managed to feel that moment of perfection and then invite yourself and invite your students to reflect. If they're a surfer on that moment where everything was in perfect harmony, and you glided along the top of that wave. And you can even extend that surfboard analogy to body surfers. There's probably a whole lot more of them in the world. 
a recollection of that moment of total surrender to the ocean moving you forward and feeling a perfection as you were delivered safely onto the shore. And that's a moment. Or that moment where the relationship, the relationship of love resulted in this exchange where your ego needs dissolved and you were totally given over to that other person. What a beautiful realm to recall. And to think about, perhaps, a moment where it all came together at work. And it could be, literally, if you're a mason, a wall well built. It could be, if you're a teacher, a lesson perfectly delivered and received. I think all of us, regardless of our craft, regardless of our trade, regardless of even the type of family we engage, that we can recall moments when it really was totally okay, where we really did feel that experience, even fleetingly, of freedom. First, create a moment where a student recalls a perfection, recalls an attainment of what in the Vedas is called ritta, that moment of artistry, of rhythm, of perfect order. And allow people to enjoy linking that perfection with freedom. All that needed to be done had been done. All that needed to be thought had been thought. All that needed to be performed had been performed. And in that instant, there was a dropping away of grasping. There was a dropping away of attachment. There was dropping away of overthinking the situation. And in that moment, that moment of élan, as they say in French, that moment of perfect city, of accomplishment, of being, that moment of authentic encounter, that moment of immersion in nature, that moment of great refinement, that moment of great elevation, that moment simultaneously of satya, truth, and sattva, illumination, that moment to be remembered, to be recalled, is the moment of freedom. And it can be so alluring, it can be so enticing, it can and often does result in feelings of power in what Patanjali warns. Do not get attached to that feeling. 
that feeling in all its perfection will not last. Do not allow yourself to be seduced by pride. To own your status requires simultaneously letting go, not getting stuck, not fixing things, not concretizing any situation, no matter how wonderful, but allowing it to be and its being and allowing it to fade when it ultimately must fade. So this is a call in a very real way toward examining and working with that final klesha of Abhinavesha. We have entered, we have arrived, we are fully present within life, and as much as we want it to stay the same, it inevitably will change. The moment of raising children changes as the children become educated, as they mature, as they take wing. Yet that bliss, in the moment of that bliss of love of children, that moment, having become a memory, becomes a memory of perfection. But the quality and the specifics are given over to yet another generation. So rather than allowing the ego to be swept up into attachment and pride, let it go, let it go, let it go. From Samyama, on the moment and its unfolding, there is knowledge born of discernment. Hence, two things that are similar are observed, the seer and the seen. Neither one is limited by differences of birth's designation and place. The knowledge born of discernment is said to be liberating, inclusive of all conditions and all times, and non-successive. In the sameness of purity between sattva and purusha, there is freedom. Kashana tat kramayoha samyamad viveka jam jnanam Kashana tat pramayoho samyamad vivekajam yanam. Kashana tat pramayoho samyamad vivekajam yanam. Jati lakshana deshire anyata an avachedat tulyayos tataha pratipatehe. Jati lakshana deshire anyata anavejat chat. 
Tulya yos tataha pratipatehe, Jati lakshana deshire anyata an avacherat, Tulya yos tataha pratipatehe. Tarakam sarva vishayam sarvata vishayam akramam cheti vivekajam jnanam. Tarakam sarva vishayam sarvata vishayam akramam cheti vivekajam jnanam. Tarakam sarva vishayam sarvata vishayam akramam cheti vivekajam jnanam. Sattva purushayoho shudhi samye kaivalyam iti. Sattva purushayoho shudhi samye kaivalyam iti. Sattva purushayoho shudhi samye kaivalyam iti. These four conclude the last verses of the third hada. And in this, we're invited yet again to consider the flow of time. And by performing samyama, the applied dharana dhyana samadhi, by contemplating the moment, and how the moment unfolds. Past, present, future. A discernment arises in the stuff of the present can be found the seeds of the past. In the stuff of the present, one can anticipate the fruition of the future. And as this discernment allows all of the heavy karmas, all of those klishta karmas of ignorance, delusion, of egotism, of attraction leading to addiction, of revulsion, the desire to keep pushing on, is all of those sort of fall away. There's an ascent that allows that sattva to reflect the purusha. And in this relationship, of equipoise. In this relationship, through which no further descent emerges, then there's no occasion for birth, there's no occasion for name, there's no occasion for place. It's as if with everything that needs to be done, has been done, the ascent has transpired. In that moment, there is silence. In that moment, there is emptiness. 
In that moment, there is shunya. In that moment, the knowledge that arises with recollection and abiding in that moment, we feel free. No matter what the circumstance or condition, no matter when it happened, that moment abides. Nothing follows from that moment. And as I recall from childhood, standing next to that radiator in the kitchen and glancing upon the blue and gray peeling paint behind the radiator, noticing that moment and noticing even more importantly the clarity of awareness in that moment and recognizing that all things led up to that moment and all things from future can trace backward to that moment. And then remembering that experience of the goldfinch flying circles around my eight-year-old head and remembering to remember that those experiences which cannot be conjured, which cannot be imagined, which can, yes, be remembered, but most importantly, can be honored. In those experiences where the purity of the sattva, sattva shuddhi, and the purity of the witness, the seer, the purusha, purusha sudhi, when they align, in that moment, there is a freedom. Furthermore, what we discover in that freedom Nothing remains to be said. Nothing remains to be done. But in the words of a philosopher who may have had this in mind when he wrote these words, it may be the case, it may not, I don't know his intention, but we come to a place that calls for an eternal return, that we can recall, we can return again and again to this place of pristine awareness, to this place of pure being, to this place so easily, easily overlooked where we're really okay, we're really comfortable, we're really whelmed, we're really enthused, meaning filled with God, we're really arrived. And in so many cultures, 
and in so many individual lifetimes because of the crush of consumerism, plus the crush of the desire for status, it's very easy to forget about, it's very easy to lose sight of that goal. Another phrase from culture, keep your eyes on the prize. I love that phrase because it's personally inspiring, but it refers collectively to a desire in the style of the Buddhist bodhisattva to allow all ships to rise, to allow all to experience this gift of being, this gift of dwelling even for an instant in the realm of the seer. And what we've seen in this pada begins with a definition of combining dharana, concentration, allowing it to transition into dhyana, meditation, yielding a moment of samadhi, immersion in becoming that clear jewel. And then we're told in this pada that that moment of samadhi is followed by a moment of naroda, of restraint, that then descends into the place of a one-pointed mind, and then that one-pointed mind gains control over the realm of the elements, the realm of the senses. And with that cascade back into the manifest, back into the Vyutana, informed by the quiet of Naroda, allows one to manifest in all manner of shapes and forms that one is able to understand the operations of the universe, that one is able to understand the operations of the body, that one is able to become strong, that one is able to become profoundly compassionate, that one is able to read the minds of others, to learn languages, to be able to discern intuitively what's going on particularly through applying the samyama, this dharana dhyana samadhi, to the flow of time. And through that as well, to be able to understand all past lives based on current residual conditioning. And to be able to gain the skill through this process of discernment to gradually purify, to gradually purify, to gradually purify, and also to be able to animate other people, to be able to inspire other people, to be able to arrive again and again at 
that place of quiet, at that place of ascent. And through gaining these skills, these powers, these accomplishments, always keeping in mind, no one can own this. A life of freedom can be constructed. A life of freedom grounded in humility can be delivered. A freedom felt from within and a freedom that benefits the orbit of the many worlds that intersect with that world. And in yoga, there's a beautiful phrase for this, which is to become the Jivan Mukta, to become a person whose life, whose jeev, whose breath in action is mukta, is free. And that means not clinging, not clinging, no ego, no ignorance, no addictions, no hatreds, but simply remaining in a state of equipoise. This is the greatest power of all. And this, in terms of teaching yoga, can be communicated through reading, poetry, created by people of service, telling stories of people who have made this journey, and also inviting students to consider the possibility of their own self-empowerment. And for each student, this will be individual. By encouraging students to keep a diary, by encouraging students to journal regularly, there can be, on their part, a description that they may want to put to paper or let flow through the keyboard on their personal blog about the qualities that they most would enjoy cultivating within themselves. And virtually pretty much all of those qualities have been covered within the third pada of the Yoga Sutra. It's okay, you wanna be beautiful? Let yourself take that as a goal. You wanna become buff? It's in the Yoga Sutra, go ahead, lift some weights. You want to be a compassionate person? Go ahead, follow the Brahma Vihara, take up the practice of metta, of Maitri. Manifest the quality of karuna, of compassion. Your go-to place, rather than envy or jealousy, let that become sympathetic joy in the presence of those who are so, so good. Let yourself develop 
rather than disgust, rather than hatred, to develop equanimity. An equanimity that becomes the go-to place. All of these, despite their specificity, all of these can become part of what it means to be a yogi, part of what it means to move toward a life informed by liberation. But most of all, with emphasis again and again within the third pada of the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali warns about ego. Ego, this human impulse to grab it, to hold it, to own it, to flaunt it. The human ego must be put into its place. Self-corrective, very important. The universe, similarly, whether it be through family or workplace or just the simple circumstances of the passing of time, that eventually that ego, which has served so well, also in certain moments will dissolve and particularly for those who take up a life of service, other people's problems become more important than your own self-aggrandizement. And with that, we find the culmination of Kriya Yoga. We find the culmination of Ashtanga Yoga. With this third pada, we're given an invitation to build ourselves into the person of freedom and the person of service. Perfections are born due to birth, drugs, mantra, austerity, or samadhi. Janma, oshadi, mantra, tapaha, samadhi, jaha, sadayaha. Janma, oshadi, mantra, tapaha, samadhi, jaha, sadayaha. Janma, oshadi, mantra, tapaha, Samadhi Jaha Sadayaha. Now we enter the fourth and final pada of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Interestingly, this fourth chapter, which explains karma, which explains the pitfalls and obstacles to freedom 
and offers a culminating description of that freedom, it actually starts with a little bit of a recap from the prior pada, namely a listing of the cities, a listing of all of the ways in which the human person can approximate a feeling of accomplishment that one might feel is akin to the experience of kaivalyam, of freedom, of total purity. But as we see within this very first sutra, there's a little bit of a critique here about the different pathways that people may follow. There's an acknowledgement that they might work, but again, the implicit critique carrying over from the prior pada is that if one owns any one of these particular ways of doing it, one loses sight of the yoga sankhya method of Viveka Kyati. And in the yoga sankhya philosophical approach, it's Viveka Kyati, meaning discernment combined with an accounting for the way things are that sets one free. Only through this knowledge can the sattva rise to purusha? Can the illuminated state replicate and mirror reflexively the pure consciousness of the seer? And yet we find in this sutra, janma, birth, birth status, oshadi, taking of drugs, mantra, Tapaha, Samadhi. Now, perhaps they're working with increasing levels of appropriateness, but let's take them one at a time. First of all, some people are just gifted from birth with, for instance, cheerfulness gifted from birth with an impressive physicality, gifted from birth with beauty, and it's all too easy for people gifted from birth to coast along, to shine it on, and not be willing to come up against that edge of darkness that calls one to self-examination and calls one to greater states of purity. To be born with a silver spoon in your mouth does not usually provide the friction needed to truly excel in the journey of being human. Second, 
And the pitfalls of this are so obvious. Oshadi, this notion that you can take a pill, this notion that you can inhale and hold, this notion that you can inject something into your veins that will make you blissful, that will make you energetic, that will in some way improve you. Okay, these states experience cannot be denied, but the problem with drug use is multiple. The problem with drug use is that drugs wear off, that drugs can lead to addiction that can destroy not only one's own health, but destroy one's social network. And the drugs can lead to psychotic episodes that in some instances are impossible to overcome. The third mantra. And again, mantra seemingly harmless. But I recall various times where mantra perhaps became a source of pride. I have my mantra and it's a secret. And people got sort of stuck in owning that mantra maybe lost a little bit of that edge, like, oh, I have a mantra, I'm, I'm protected, and that's one. And then mantra can lead to a little bit of insecurity about, is my mantra as good as your mantra? And mantra can lead to a little bit of a complacency Mantra certainly will deliver people to a feeling of an elevated state, but some people might use that elevated state as a buffer against coming up against that edge of fully engaging the universe and all the correctives that can be brought upon an individual by the welling up of difficulty, the welling up of challenge. And not everything can be dissolved through the recitation of mantra. And then tapas. Tapas, certainly, tapas creates that heat to be able to accomplish a fast gives one that heat glow, that yoga glow, if you will. And with fasting in particular, this amazing reservoir of energy, and it's been chemically defined, this reserve of energy comes about without having to Think about three meals a day. There's, again, um, lots of mental space that's freed up, both in thinking and the time for food preparation and for food consumption. 
Okay, there are so many wonderful aspects to be discerned through the fasting process. And similarly, amazing inwardness arises through the practice of silence. But in both instances, there could be a little bit of something unhealthy in the fasting rhythm. There could be a little bit of shutting out the world through pride and keeping silent. And there could be an arrogance that arises as tapas might even become a contest. Could be a competition in terms of my asana is stronger than your asana, or I can stand in the headstand for longer than you can stand in a headstand. And this competition amongst yogis can actually stoke up ego in a way that's counterproductive to freedom. Now the one perhaps closest to the goal and in many ways defines the goal, the one perfection called here samadhi is of course the last of the eightfold limbs. It's the culmination of that place that brings you closer and closer and closer to the sattva and the purusha, to the illumination reflecting the seer and the seer being reflected in the stuff of life chosen by this elevated individual. But again, samadhi requires a lot of work and samadhi can result, perhaps if there's a little bit of a descent, pride, oh, I've got samadhi. What do you got? Okay, a little bit of boasting about elevated states and how long can one can dwell in an elevated state. And samadhi can lead to a cult of personality. And that cult of personality, oh, that person has samadhi, that person has power. Again, the pitfalls are numerous with building someone up allowing that person to believe that, oh yeah, and then again, there could be a descent, there could be a fall. And what, in returning to this definition of Vivekya Kyati, can be borne in mind in terms of the wisdom offered by Patanjali, is that the yogi must be ever discerning. The yogi must recognize that good birth, good genes, does not equate freedom. That a pleasant drug-induced experience does not equate freedom. That a mantra owned and flaunted in a community developed in service of building that mantra does not 
equate freedom. That an austerity perfectly performed, stoking up that purifying heat within the body does not equate to freedom. That the rhythm of samadhi, a return to samadhi, perhaps comes close to that definition of freedom, but the discernment must be maintained. That ownership of that state does not equate freedom. Now remember some years ago, I had a beautiful summer, a summer where I was able to work 20 hours a week, working with sacred Buddhist literature. I was not in class, and I was able to devote a full five hours a day to yoga and meditation. And I lived in a, my wife and I were caretakers. We lived in this beautiful former carriage house on a grand historic estate in the rolling hills of the North Shore of Long Island. And I would go out at sunrise and experience and bathe in the sunrise. And I would retreat into my pranayama and into my asana. And I would meditate through my concentrations into these states of just remarkable bliss. And then I met up with a Tibetan meditation master. And quite renowned, quite accomplished, a widely published author. And I was, by this time, 20 years old, and I was feeling sort of the fullness and all the benefits of having yoga and doing yoga and meditating. And he said, describe, what do you do? And I told him, I said, well, this summer, I have five hours every day meditating, gazing, asana, pranayama. And he just looked at me with disgust. And he said, too much. And he ran over to the refrigerator and opened it out and got a yogurt and said, here, have a yogurt. And it was wonderfully comical and it was wonderfully ego deflating. And it was an opportunity that sort of stopped me Reflect it to me that, oh, you're getting a little bit into the spiritual ego thing. Get on with your life. It was a moment not forgotten, a moment of instructive humiliation, but done so lightly, done so insightfully, done so lovingly, that all I could do in melting was appreciate that corrective and admire, just really have mudita, sympathetic joy for such an experienced teacher who is also a professor at Penn State University. So the fourth pada, we're going to learn more about karma we're going to be reminded of the possibilities of pitfall, and we're going to be gifted by Patanjali yet again with a description of what 
it means to move toward freedom. So as you introduce this sutra to your students, and as you reflect upon the meaning of this sutra within your own life, you can think about, am I proud about my emplacement? And perhaps that might be an opportunity to reflect on issues of class, on issues of gender, on issues of race. Okay, all of that falls within this category of birth. You might choose to reflect upon, is there a little bit of pride about the neighborhood? Is this healthy? Does this work toward freedom? Second, particularly with the widespread acceptance and the returning interest, particularly of hallucinogens and of marijuana, this can be a very important corrective. That, yeah, that's something that people do, and it might approximate a state of slowing down, but always remember the pitfalls of drug use, the possibility of addiction, the possibility of ongoing psychosis, the inevitability that this is a transient state at best. It's a moment of perfection, but not a state of abiding freedom. Mantra, lovely. Gotta love those bhajans. Gotta love those singing experiences. But again, Patanjali warns, don't get stuck in the mantra. Don't get stuck in your wonderful tapas. Don't even get stuck by owning your bliss. The best bliss is a bliss so blissful that there's no one there to experience or to own the bliss. To let go, to move toward freedom, according to yoga, according to Sankhya, means understanding this all-important dance, this dance between the seen, the manifest, the engaged, the vyutana, and the witness of the dance, that place of ascent, that place truly of freedom. Kaivalyam, singular, Kaivalyam, individual, Kaivalyam, unique to each and every human circumstance. Yoga Kaivalyam. From the flooding of the qualities of nature arises Parinama into other births. The initiator does not start the cause which arises from the surrounding particular karmas, just like a farmer 
waters seeds. The fabricating minds arise only from the I amness. Jatyantara parinamaha prakritya purat. Jatyantara parinamaha prakritya purat. Jatyantara parinamaha prakritya purat. Nimitim aprayojikam prakirtinam varanabedas tu tataha kshetra kavat. Nimitam aprayojikam prakirtinam varanabedas tu tataha kshetra kavat. Nimitam aprayojikam prakirtinam Varanabedas tu tataha kshetra kavat. Nirmana chitaha smita matrat. Nirmana chitaha smita matrat. Nirmana chitaha smita matrat. Now in this use of extended metaphors, Patanjali explains how life remains irrepressible, how life always seeks expression. And the metaphor that's used has to do with water, with seed, and with the farmer. And the farmer, the holder, the owner of the field, clearly falls in the camp of Prakriti, of the Vyutana, of the realm of activity, and even though all of the agricultural process, all of the process of karmic unfoldment takes place for the benefit of the seer, of the purusha, of the consciousness, the consciousness itself does not initiate this process. The consciousness itself does not have any involvement with the process of planting the seed, with the process of watering the seed, with the process of the seed coming to fruition. So the initiator must dwell within some aspect of Prakriti, and Prakriti herself arranges for her own continuity. Now, the fundamental underlying presupposition here stands by the claim of one birth leading to another birth. And if we retrieve the reincarnation narrative from the Upanishads, 
The metaphor given is that the unresolved karmas, the samskaras, the vasanas, at the point of creation, rise up to the rain clouds. And with the coming of the monsoon, those impressions come down to earth in the form of rain. And they generate, they germinate, they give birth to plants, they reconstitute into food, and that food becomes ovum and semen. And then that coating, which was the remainder from a prior birth, through the course of the agricultural cycle and through the course of the human reproductive cycle, through the course, obviously, of the human digestive cycle, eventually reestablishes itself. But just as we can imagine an ascent up into the clouds, the observer would be even beyond that weather-based biological cycle. And the importance of this particular articulation serves to underscore the non-involvement of the witness with the processes, the result in life. Life seeks to express itself. Life seeks to resolve itself. If we look at the two categories of boga, experience, expression, and apavarga, or moksha, release, the resolve, we see that all of that takes place within the realm of prakriti in her subtle form, taking expression through her gross form, and when the end of a life cycle takes place, it goes back into the subtle form within Prakriti, awaiting re-expression within the gross form. Furthermore, within the umbrella that languages the nature of these seeds, these seeds of karma, the seed that ensures the taking on of yet a new identity is the klishta karma of egotism, of asmita, which literally means the quality of I am. In all of the nirmana chittas, all of the appearance minds, all of the creative worlds that an ego chooses to manifest arise from that ego, from that sense of self. And recall, asmita, dirg darshana shakyor ekatma tevasmita. The asmita, the ego, thinks, I am really who I am, forgetting 
that silent witness, forgetting that which remains beyond the beyond. So this process of life, this process of self-expression, this process of cultivation of seed accounts for why the human being does everything it does. It's all seeded by Brahman. It is all seeded by residues of karma. And at the core, we find ego. Now, as a yoga teacher, you can invite your students to take this cluster of sutras as an opportunity to reflect on the craving mind, to reflect on that point of ego that says, look at me, look at what I've done. And they could perhaps workshop with one another or in their journals about their own sources of ego gratification. And on the one hand, it can be utterly non-judgmental. I mean, it is what it is. We are persons with identities. And sometimes it's fun to play with exploring them, to play a little bit with autobiography, and to be able to name, to be able to bring into awareness those things that most define this one wonderful and often beautiful life we've been given. So the array of professions, the array of relationships, the array of desired objects, the array of inclinations toward maybe drama, maybe comedy, maybe romance. Okay, the scripting, the scripting ego-based that calls us into the world. And by playing with this narrative, we return automatically to that process of savichara, of understanding where are we driving our chariot? Where do we choose to place our energy, our affections? Where do we choose to say no? And then, in circumstance by circumstance, that narrative can be traced back to ask the questions, who, what, why, how, where, who, what, why, how, where, and then some deep memories may arise. 
On the one hand, to have a narrative, interesting, perhaps not even interesting, but what the sutra here emphasizes is that the narrative constitutes the world to be experienced. So think of the vegetable garden. Think of the vegetable garden and all the planning that goes in to thinking about vegetables to bring forth. Think about how it, depending upon your climate, needs to be irrigated, how the sprinklers need to be set free or the hose, or if you live in a very wet climate, how the weeding may seem rather unrelenting. But take that tending of a garden as a metaphor for the tending to life. And you could even invite your students perhaps to design their own gardens. And remarkably, some will prefer onions, others will prefer carrots, others will want to make sure that there will be a steady supply of kale, and some won't even think about vegetables. They will go to the flower garden and they will have their chosen marigolds or dahlias or so many, so many different flowers available. And this begun, begins to give the yogi a sense of individuality, a sense that that person's garden will differ from this person's garden, that the seeds chosen by one individual will be different from the seeds chosen by another individual. And this all falls under the rubric, under the frame of this pada, which is kaivalyam. And kaivalyam sometimes translates as aloneness. One way that I'd like to think about kaivalyam is singularity. As we will see in the Kaivalyapada, everybody's karma differs. Each individual has constructed her or his own emplacement within the world. And within yoga, those differences are to be understood, those differences are to be valued. And unlike some other philosophical schools in India and beyond, rather than saying that when it's all over, you join with the cosmic consciousness, or when it's all over, you disappear into a vast emptiness. What yoga posits 
is a unique, self-defined experience within manifest reality that leads successively and progressively to a return to an experience of consciousness that has always been uniquely your own. The theory philosophically here is called the theory of multiple purushas, multiple consciousnesses retaining the integrity, retaining that individual spark to be found in every singular individual. So singularity, a kaivalyam that is personal, a kaivalyam that requires progressive purification, but a kaivalyam arrived at uniquely by each different pilgrim on the path. Everyone arrives in his or her own manner. Everyone arrives at her or his own particular moment of time. So on the one hand, as a yoga teacher, we try to draw all these analogies for our own experiences of, of moments of awakening and for our own experiences of struggle. But whatever metaphor that either the teacher finds or the student shares of a type they may seem to share a common language, but of necessity, one person's experience will be different from the experience of another person, even if that person is one's identical twin. So yoga at its ground espouses a philosophy of pluralism, a philosophy of multiplicity, and requires respect and honoring of difference. Thanks for listening to this episode of Professor Chapel's lecture series about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Discover more episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or on podcast.glo.com. I'm Derek Mills.